0: Heavenly Father, this morning as we gather here, we rejoice that the power of the gospel does reach as far as the curse is found. And that one day Christ will come. He will set up his kingdom and he will rule. And Father, we long for that day. And even now as we gather, we proclaim, Come, Lord Jesus. And yet, even now we will rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ in the joy that is ours in Him even now in this world with its problems and its troubles and its pains. Even now we have Christ and all that is in Him and all your promises in Him are yes and amen and we rejoice in that and we cling to that hope. And Heavenly Father, even this morning as we turn to this passage in John 16, may we be encouraged in that hope. May we see the joy that is ours in Christ, a joy that is full, a joy that is never-ending. May we see that we have hope, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of what the world may say, because our hope is in Christ, our joy is in Christ. May that your Spirit would guide us, that you would give me boldness this morning to proclaim the truth of the word of God with clarity and with authority. May you be honored in all that is said and done. In Jesus' name, amen. John 16. You've probably heard the story of in 1929 as the stock market crashed, the beginning of what has been come to know come to be known as the Great Depression. There were stories that went around. As the stock market cra- crashed of people jumping out of windows to their death. As the stock market crashed as their as their future, as everything that they had put their hope in fell to nothing and nothing more to live for. The reality is that that initial crash of the stock market, much of the rumors of those taking their lives was greatly actually probably exaggerated. But over the next several years as the great depression wore on, suicide levels did go up to incredible levels because their hope, their joy had been taken. And they had nothing more to live for. They had no more hope in life. And they thought they had more hope in death than in life. So we come to John 16 this morning. John 16, 16 to 24. Jesus, continuing his farewell discourse, promises his disciples that in him they have fullness of joy. In him, they have joy that cannot be touched, that cannot be taken away. As we come to this passage this morning, if you remember, we are still winding our way through the streets of Jerusalem. They've left the upper room, Jesus and his eleven disciples. Judas is off with the priests, he's making plans, he's exchanging information for money, at this point, it is just a few hours until Judas will walk up to Jesus and will kiss him on the cheek and hand him over. And while Judas is off doing his things, Jesus is continuing teaching his disciples. These are his last few lessons, his last few hours. He is telling them what they need to know as the cross looms large. As we come to this passage this morning, we'll see first utter confusion. That's not new for the book of John. All throughout the book, everyone is confused, it seems. Utter confusion as Jesus continues to teach his disciples, but then unrestrained joy and unrestricted access. The first thing we see is utter confusion in John 16, 16 to 18. A little while, and you will not see me," Jesus says. "And again, a little while, and you will see me, because I go to the Father." He's coming out of a passage in, in John, beginning of John 16, John 16:5 16, through 15, where he has told them about the coming Holy Spirit, the Helper who is at hand, who is coming. Now he transitions. In a little while, and you will not see me. Again, this is not new information. He's been telling them all throughout this farewell discourse, I am leaving, I am going. Someone new is coming, the Holy Spirit, the helper, he will guide you, but I am leaving. And a little while, that, that, that phrase there at the beginning, a little while, he's been telling them this all throughout the gospel of John, all throughout his earthly ministry, all the way back in chapter 7, verse 33, he says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I go to the one who sent me. And John 12, 35, he says, the light is with you a little longer, therefore, walk in the light while you have the light. In John 13, a little while longer, I am with you. John 14, 19, a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, because I live, you will live. Jesus' message has not changed. All throughout his ministry, he's been telling his disciples, I, I, I'm going to leave. It's not going to be like this way forever. I will be with you just a little while longer. The time is coming when you will be on when, when, when I will be gone. But as we come to the farewell discourse, he's comforted them. I am leaving, but I'm not leaving you alone. I'm not leaving you ill-prepared. Of course, we know, knowing the, the story, we know the Gospel of John. A little while, and you will not see me. You know, that refers to his death, his burial. In fact, at this time, it is a very little while. It's just a few hours away in which he will be betrayed. He will be taken. He will be arrested. He will be beaten. He will be lied about. He will be crucified. He will die. He will be buried. But he doesn't stop there. There's hope here. A little while and you will not see me, but again a little while and you will see me. Again, we know the end of the story, right? We know that that, that's true. He leaves them, he is buried, he is gone, but it's just a little while. And then he rises victorious, the resurrection. And then he tells them again his ultimate destination, because I go to the Father. I will die. I will rise. I'm going to the Father. It's interesting, all throughout the book of John, specifically in his farewell discourse, Jesus has stressed not just the fact that he is leaving, he has stressed where he is going. He's going to the Father. All the way back in John 14, verses 2 to 3, he says, I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you may be. John 14, 12 to 13, you will do great works. Because why? Because I go to the Father. John 14, 28, you should rejoice. Why? Because I'm going to the Father who is greater than I. John 15, 26, Jesus sends the helper. Where does he send him from? He sends him from the Father. John 16, 5, Jesus tells his disciples what they need to know. Now is the time. Why? Because he is going to the Father. John 16, 10, the Spirit will continue the ministry because Jesus is going to the Father. In all of these, Jesus doesn't just say, I am leaving, he tells them where he is going. I am going to the Father. That's important. Jesus' departure is important because of where Jesus is going. We saw last week that it is to their advantage that the Helper comes. But it's also to their advantage that Jesus goes to the Father. Obviously the disciples cannot yet understand this, but Hebrews really kind of builds on this and fleshes this out. We need not only a Helper on earth, but an Advocate in heaven. And in Christ we have that. Jesus doesn't just go. He goes to the Father. And that is to your advantage. There's a reason that he stresses that. And the New Testament builds on that. Where Jesus is. He is at the right hand of the Father. He is pleading for you. He is your advocate. So Jesus is leaving, and that, that, that is sad, and that is difficult, but there's good news in this. He is leaving because it is good for you. It is to your advantage because of where he is going. He is going to the Father. That's important for us to understand because he stresses that time and time again, all throughout the farewell discourse, he wants his disciples to know he is going to the Father Here we find the utter confusion, though. Verse 17, then some of his disciples said among themselves, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I go to the Father? They said, Therefore, what is this that he says? A little while. We do not know what he is saying. You're totally confused. D.A. Carson says this, the disciples still have no category to allow them to make sense of a Messiah who would die and rise from the dead. They cannot reconcile this in their mind. It makes no sense to them. Have you ever been in a situation where you were trying to explain something to someone only to realize that all you're doing is confusing them more because they're missing a piece? key piece of information. I've done that many times. My favorite sport is soccer. Growing up, I I loved playing soccer. And when we moved to Indianapolis, we were working among kids who many of them had never touched a soccer ball in their life. And so when you try to teach them the sport and you're explaining to them, you have to dribble the ball They're thinking dribble with your hands. Soccer does not involve your hands, if you know soccer at all. It's called the same thing. You're using your feet to move the ball. But if I was explaining soccer, and I didn't explain that, they're missing a key piece of information, then it makes no sense when I tell them, no, 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 you can't use your hands, that's a handball. But you said to dribble the ball. Many times to my kids they'll ask a question and they just don't have the information for me to answer it in a way that makes any sense to them whatsoever. It's just going to lead to more questions and to more confusion. It's not surprising that the disciples are here confused. Jesus has just said, um, earlier he said in verse 12 of chapter 16, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. You're not ready, and we see that right here. He's telling them what's going to happen, but they have, they have no category in which to think of this. They, they cannot follow, they cannot possibly understand what he is saying. They are totally and utterly confused. And we see unrestrained joy. Verses 19 to 22. And what we find, that even in their confusion, Jesus still knows. Now Jesus knew. Again, this is a theme we've seen all throughout the book of John, that Jesus knows the heart of man. We see it back in chapter 2, verses 24 to 25. He knew all men. In 13.1, he knew that his hour had come. In 13.11, he knew who would betray him. Jesus knows. And he knows his disciples, and he knows that they are confused, and so he reaches out to them. He says that he knew that they desired to ask him. And so he says, are you inquiring among yourselves about what I said a little while? And you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And here he explains these two little whiles. I say to you that you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. Again, this is the cross in a little while as Jesus is is taken, as he is beaten, as he is nailed to that cross, as he dies, as he is buried. It will cause weeping among the disciples, but rejoicing in the world. And you will be sorrowful. Your sorrow will be real, but your sorrow will be turned into joy. Your sorrow will be real, but your joy will be greater. Again a little while. The resurrection is what this is looking to. And we know the outcome. We know what is is being said here. We know the story. We We just read the story just two weeks ago. We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ and we, we read through the passion story. We know that at the cross, the world declared victory. That on that night, in that darkness, it seemed that they had silenced Jesus and his disciples. The world had won, but the grave was not the end. And in the resurrection, Jesus returns and he declared victory over sin and the grave, and he silenced the world. You will weep and you will lament, and the world will rejoice. But your sorrow will be turned into joy. Your sorrow and your lamenting is not the end. Joy is coming. Hope is coming. The same event that initially caused the world to rejoice will cause the disciples to rejoice eternally. Jesus gives a little illustration here. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she had given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish, for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It's probably an illustration that makes more sense to half of our congregation than to the other half. But in that moment, in that labor, The pain is real. The fear, the uncertainty, the tears, they are real and they are many. And in fact, even in that moment, knowing the outcome, knowing that this will result in a a baby, it doesn't numb the pain. It gives you strength to endure the pain. It doesn't numb the pain. The pain is real. The tears are real. The, the, The sorrow, the lamenting, the weeping is real. but the joy is infinitely greater. Regardless of the pain, that mother does not look back on those days with pain, but with regret. With pain or regret, but with joy. I've heard, I've never experienced this myself, but I've heard that it's extremely painful and I believe it. And yet when you hear women talk about it it's not with regret it's not something that they look back on and that they are ashamed of something that they is hard to talk about even though the pain is great because the joy is greater Your sorrow will increase but joy is coming Therefore Just like that. Just like that labor. The pain of labor that leads to the joy of birth. Therefore, you now have sorrow. But I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and your joy no one will take from you. The pain of the cross was real. The confusion for the disciples was real. Their weeping was real. But in the wake of the resurrection, nothing could shake their joy. I mean, what? What can stop you? What can change your mood? when your Lord has risen from the dead, when you have seen that with your eyes, when your hope is sure, when you have seen everything that He has promised come to pass. Years later, as as Peter and John and the other disciples, as they went through difficulty, As they were beaten, as they were martyred, their joy couldn't be stolen because they had seen their Lord rise from the dead. In the wake of the resurrection, nothing could shake their joy. Your joy, no one will take from you. John 15:11 Jesus has already promised joy he says these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full The disciples' joy is full because their joy is in Christ and their joy is eternal because Jesus is eternal because he lives your joy is full My joy is in Jesus and Jesus lives Jesus wins, and in him all triumph. All who are in Jesus have hope and have joy. Your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. Your joy cannot be taken. Because Jesus lives. The world can hate you. The world can hurt you. The world can threaten you. They can lie about you. They can disappoint you. The, Lord even, the, the world even killed your Lord, and yet they cannot steal your joy because he rose again but it doesn't just stop at the world. Christians can hurt you. The church can disappoint you. But even they cannot steal your joy because your joy is not in the church. Your joy is in Christ. The world can hurt you. The world can hate you. The church can disappoint you. The church can hurt you. But neither the church nor the world can steal your joy. Your joy is in Christ and in Christ alone. Your joy is unrestrained. And your access is unrestricted. Verse 23, in that day... After the resurrection, in the day of verse, 22, verse 21 and 22, as your joy is full, in that day you will ask me nothing. Most assuredly, I say to you, whatever you ask in the Father, the Father in my name, he will give to you. What we see here in verse 23 is a change. A change in circumstance. They no longer go to Jesus with their problems, with their questions, with their requests. They go straight to the Father in Christ. You will not ask me, you will ask the Father in my name. And he will give to you. Again, this is the fourth time in this farewell discourse that Jesus has told his disciples that they will go to the Father in him. And they will have access, and he will hear, and he will act on their behalf. In chapter 14, verses 12 to 14, he says, Whatever you ask in my name, I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Chapter 15, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire and it will be done for you. In chapter 15, verse 16, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give to you. Again, this is tied back to where Jesus is. He is with the Father. You have access. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name because I've been with you. But ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It is not that my joy comes from getting what I want. But that my joy in Christ is sustained by unlimited access to the Father and it leaves me fully equipped for the troubles of life. Notice that your joy is tied to your relationship with God in Christ. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Joy and access are tied together. Because all that is yours in Christ is tied together. And because your relationship with God in Christ does not change, your joy is secure. Everything goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because your Lord lives. Your hope is sure. Your joy is endless. Your access is unrestricted. God hears you. He knows you. He loves you, as we'll see next week. He's working for you. In Christ we have unrestrained joy and in Christ we have unrestricted access to the throne of God, the Father. In Christ. Notice that your joy is not tied to the things of this life. Your joy is not tied to a full bank account. It's not tied to a successful career. It's not tied to your popularity. It's not tied to even a successful, by the worldly standards, family It's not tied to loving parents. It's not tied to fulfillment of your dreams. It's not tied to opportunity. It's not tied to your spouse. It's not tied to marriage. It's not tied to your kids. It's not tied to having kids. Your joy is in Christ. And so in Christ, when you don't have a successful career, when you are not popular, when nobody likes you it seems, when you don't have loving parents, When you don't have a functional family, when all of your dreams fall short, when your marriage is in shambles, when your kids are sources of pain, even then your joy is full in Christ if you are in Him. Because your joy is not tied to the things of this world. Your joy is not tied to your circumstances. Your joy is in Christ. The things of this world cannot affect your relationship. They cannot affect your access to God. They cannot affect your joy that is in Christ. So by way of conclusion and application, what does this mean for me? First, Believe. if you have never placed your faith in Christ alone for salvation if you are looking to your own works if you are looking to your bank account if you are looking to your family for joy, for hope, for salvation all of those things will fall short there is salvation in Christ alone there is fullness of joy in Christ alone So the first point I would call you this morning to place your faith in Christ alone for salvation. Stop leaning on your own understanding. Stop leaning on your own works. Stop trusting in your family. Turn to Christ. You are a sinner and your sin separates you from God and there is no hope for you apart from Christ alone. He died for you. He paid your penalty. He offers you righteousness in Him alone. So, point one if you want fullness of joy, trust in Christ. He has given you all that you need. But, secondly, Christian, rejoice. Know what you have in Christ. You have fullness of joy. John Piper is a popular pastor and author. And much of his ministry has been been focused on and built upon the idea of the joy that Christians have in Christ. Much of his ministry has been built on the idea that life in Christ is not meant to be dreary. It is meant to be joyful. He calls this idea Christian hedonism. He defines it this way, it's the conviction that God's ultimate goal in the world or his glory and our deepest desire to be happy are one and the same because God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. Not only is God the supreme source of satisfaction for the human soul, but God himself is glorified by our being satisfied in him. Therefore, our pursuit of joy in him is essential. Christian, you have access to fullness of joy in Christ. Are you letting the things of this world disrupt your joy or are you clinging to Christ alone? Christian, your joy can be full because your joy is in Christ. So rejoice. Rejoice. Maybe this morning you just need to recalibrate. Maybe as we close and as we sing in just a second, maybe you just need to bow at your seat and you just need to pause and you need to refocus and you need to realize that your joy is in Christ alone, regardless of circumstances. You have access to fullness of joy. Finally, pray. Your God hears. I find it interesting that our access to God, prayer, verses 23 and 24, is tied to your joy. Verse 24, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. You have all that you need in Christ. Are you going to God? Are you coming to him in prayer? Are you bringing your burdens to him? Are you clinging to him and to him alone? Paul picks up on this very same idea in Philippians 4, verses 4 to 7. It's a well-known passage. It starts, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice, have joy, but then the passage goes on. I, I, I may be rejoicing, I'm trying to rejoice in the Lord, but, but what do I do with the struggles of this life? I know that I have fullness of joy. I know that I should rejoice in the Lord. But what do I do with the pain that life brings? Don't worry. Pray. Join me, if you will, in in that passage. Philippians 4. And look what he says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say to you, rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. Don't worry. As problems come up, as life is painful, as it makes no sense, as I am disappointed, be anxious for nothing. Nothing. There is not one thing in life that can steal your joy. Be anxious for nothing. So then what do I do? But everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. That's key. With thanksgiving. The Christian can rejoice even in suffering because they know that their God is in control and they know that the problems that they have in life are there because God has allowed them and because God is working. Therefore, I can take my problems, the things that would make me anxious, I can take them to God and I can say, thank you for this. I don't understand it. I don't know what you're doing. But I know it doesn't affect my joy in Christ. I know that you hear. here. I know that you are working. So with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus. You have fullness of joy and you have unlimited access. Don't waste what you have in Christ. Believe, rejoice, and pray. Jesus doesn't promise his disciples that there will be no pain, that there will be no difficulty. He just spent, just a few uh, verses ago, he spent time telling his disciples, you will be hated by the world. You will be persecuted by the world. They hated me, they will hate you. And just a few verses later, he says, rejoice in me, your joy is full. Persecution is promised. Hate is promised. But that does not affect your joy in Christ. Because Christ is risen. Your joy is full.